please rise as you are able and receive these good tidings from the gospel according to Luke, the third chapter, beginning in the first verse. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make God's paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Let us pray. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. Enter into this space and anoint each heart and mind that we might fully receive and perceive what you are doing in us, in this community, and in your world. Prepare in us a place that we might fully receive the gift of this Advent season and be better prepared to share it in all the world. And now, O oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. And let the people say with one voice, Amen. What would you do if you were really free? Free from things that trip you up, the habits and attitudes that keep you from really moving through life with ease. What would you do if you were free from guilt and shame that keeps you rooted in past wrongs and old regrets? What would you do if you were free from believing something you've done makes you less than worthy of God's love or able of doing God's kingdom work? Well, on the second Sunday of Advent, John's good tidings of freedom and forgiveness come to us from an unexpected place. Not the halls of earthly power where Herod rules, where past wrongs are adjudicated by corrupt court systems, nor the pulpits of religious power where Annas and Caiaphas are in control, where divisions between right and wrong, welcome and unwelcome are laid down. No, God's word comes to John in what the scripture calls Eremus, the deserted places, the wilderness places that represented throughout the corpus of Scripture that which was unsafe, that made you vulnerable, that put you at risk, that was outside what you could tame or control. These good tidings come to us in places 
where we least expect to find them. Now, once we're invited into the wilderness to receive this word, we're called to what is, what is used here or named here metanoia, the invitation to change our minds to repentance. And in the verses preceding the ones read today, John doesn't mince any words in calling us to repent. This invitation into wilderness isn't a simple sojourn for a quiet picnic in the woods. It's a spiritual experience, one that invites intentional examination that strips away the things that limit our perception and insulate us from the truth. The truth about how we live, the truth about who we are, the truth about how those things reflect or don't the values we profess. Now, let me pause, lest you think I'm going to preach a sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of sermon. That's not what we're here for today. And the truth is that centuries of bad theology have left us associating that word repentance with street corner preachers proclaiming our impending doom and destruction. Sound familiar to anybody out there? Well, that's not... That's not what Luke's about. No, Luke's metanoia isn't about shame, and it's certainly not about damnation. It is instead a free gift of God's grace, an invitation from the one who holds the world together to come into the places where we need to confront the things that trip us up so that we might more fully and freely move in the world. It is what John Wesley called justifying grace that invites us to confront and honestly address that spiritual and emotional baggage that we all carry that weighs us down in life. These good tidings aren't just about confrontation. They are the promise of the power of transformation. John's baptism of repentance that we receive in the gospel today is the first step on a journey of a thesis the word translated as forgiveness in today's text. It literally means a release from bondage, a letting go of the former things as if they'd never happened at all. It means freedom. So if these good tidings are about confrontation, they are also a profound invitation, an invitation to be free to be free from anything that prevents us from receiving the hope that we are beloved of God and that call to be that hope made alive in the world. Luke echoes the ancient words of two prophets, Isaiah and Malachi, each of whom themselves write from wilderness places at wilderness moments in the lives of God's people, offering hope that our present realities and our possible futures are not bound to or dictated by our previous mistakes. Even in the wildernesses of our sin and brokenness, where our lives are full of trip hazards like regret and shame and full of constant detours caused by habits and ways of thinking, we know we need to change. God comes to be with us, helps us face without fear or shame that we don't always get it right, that we're fallible, that we mess up. And then... The most profound hope we're offered of all, God helps us, doesn't just leave us in the wilderness, God helps us clear up the clutter that's begun to clog up the paths of our lives, grants us 
new grace, to map out a different way of being, to change our minds about the directions we've been moving, and sets us on a new path where we are free to live more fully in the light of God's love. These are good tidings of freedom and of hope. But the question for us today isn't so much whether or not they're good, I think, but whether or not we're really ready to receive them. You know, I grew up in a family where we were really good at apologizing for every little thing we did. Quick to say I'm sorry, and no small part, I'm sure, lest somebody have the power to hold that thing we did over our heads, but also probably rooted in the firm belief that something fundamental in us was broken. We just needed to say, We were sorry. But forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness we're being offered today, isn't simply about being able to say you're sorry. It's about trusting that you're worthy of the forgiveness that's offered when you do. And this kind of forgiveness, it's really hard to receive. It turns our relational economy on its head in a world where we're preconditioned to keep score where Santa's making lists of who's naughty or nice, where the elf on a shelf is teaching our children about all the bad they're capable of, we quickly learn how to define ourselves by the worst we're capable of. God's promise of, as the old hymn puts it, grace that is greater than all our sin, means that we lose a vital part of how we come to know who we are in the world and, just as importantly, how we know we're better or worse than everybody else. It's easy to say, I'm sorry. It's much harder to receive the forgiveness that's offered when we do. This week, I returned to my longtime spiritual companion, Henri Nouwen, for insight into what good tidings the word forgiveness might hold. He points out that the real work of forgiveness begins only when we first allow ourselves to be forgiven. It is very hard to say, he writes, without your forgiveness, I am still bound to what happened between us. Only you can set me free. He goes on, that requires not only confession that we've hurt somebody, but also the humility to acknowledge our dependency on others. As I was reflecting on those words, I was transported back to a Christmas some 20 years ago or so when my siblings and I all got those chocolate malt balls, you know what I'm talking about, that yay big around covered in tinfoil, and our stockings, dozens of chocolate malt balls. And midway through the afternoon, right around the time you start getting hungry for a mid-afternoon candy snack because it's Christmas, we realized that both my youngest brother and all of the chocolate malt balls were missing. If you smell trouble, you're on to something right. So we began to frantically search the house, looking for Kyle and for our chocolate. I'm not really sure which one we wanted to find more. And eventually, we found them both. My brother's two stockinged feet sticking out just from underneath the bed covers. And when we pulled him out from underneath the bed, he was still frantically shoveling malt ball after malt ball into his mouth, tinfoil and all, face glittering with all that gold metal. Now, my mother was always up for teaching us a lesson, so she called all the kids into the living room and sat us down on the couch to give us a stern talking to. 
She told my brother that he wasn't supposed to take other people's things and that wasn't okay, but that's okay because we forgive one another because we're family. And she told him that once we forgave him, it would be like it never happened and we could go back to having Christmas together. And he burst into tears. When she calmed him down enough to finally ask him what was going on, he told her he didn't want to be forgiven. If we forgave him, that meant he'd have to forgive us someday too. Even from an early age, he had been indoctrinated into this economy that teaches us not to trust that we're worthy of being forgiven or that we should forgive others in the process. And I think of him there now, face still glittering with foil and tears running down his cheeks, befuddled at the idea we weren't going to hold this moment over his head, except for the occasional sermon illustration, <laughs> any more than he could hold our wrongs against him over ours sick to his stomach, not just because of the chocolate, but perhaps because he realized that forgiveness could still come even when there was nothing he could do to fix what he'd done. But it meant relying on somebody else to receive it. That's the thing about these good tidings of forgiveness that can be so hard to grasp. We don't earn it. We can't buy it. There is no amount of keeping score or stock of our past wrongs or the wrongs of others, no amount of self-loathing or regret that will somehow make us worthy of the forgiveness God offers us. It simply is flowing into the wilderness places of our lives where we've become lost wandering down those roads of past wrongdoing and regret. Onto and into the back roads and byways we've built up to protect ourselves from the idea that we might need somebody else, or from confronting the fact that despite our temptation to believe otherwise, we're not always the masters of our own destiny. God's forgiveness still comes, even then, freely forgiving us with no other purpose than the desire for us to live with ease and light and joy in the world, and does so over and over again, no matter how many times it takes until we're able to actually receive what God is offering. That's why we gather, lighting candles to brighten the gloom of the wildernesses in which we wander, coming to this table where we hear again and again and again in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. To remember that our God is one who meets us in the wilderness places over and over amidst the tangled messes we can make of our lives. Invites us to confront that truth not with fear, not with anxiety or shame or guilt, but to help us lay that stuff down so we can move forward together. And invites us to trust that we are, in fact, who God has said we were since the moment the Spirit hovered over creation's waters. Absolutely beloved. And when it's hard, and the old lies of naughty and nice, worthlessness of fear, of anxiety creep in, God grants us grace, sanctifying grace, new each day, that is big enough to hold the truth of our brokenness, and the possibility of becoming whole in the same hand. You are beautiful. You are beloved. You are worthy of freedom and light and life. And there is nothing, 
No power, no preacher, no denomination or political party that can change that fundamental truth God has baked into you since the moment you drew your first breath. It's not lost on me here. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 3, that the path laid out is one that begins with forgiveness, with freedom from our sins, so we're able to participate fully in what Christ is up to in the world so that all flesh can see the salvation of God. Everything else Jesus does, all the miraculous signs and wonders, all the moments of teaching and reprimand, every table overturned and belly filled begins with the belief that by God's grace, we are forgiven again and again and again. Advent isn't simply a season of waiting. It is also an invitation to holy preparation, to go with boldness, with trust, with faith into the wilderness places of our lives to examine with honesty where we're getting tripped up or bogged down or detoured. And then to let God do what God does best. Come the long expected Jesus born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. What would you do if you were free This Advent, my hope for you, for me, for all of us, is that we finally find out. May it be so.